from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how Shell is rethinking its energy strategy, the new age of employee activism, how tech companies push states towards renewable energy, and green chemistry meets the circular economy. It's the right formula this week on 350. It's July 12, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from 2,893 miles away, I looked it up, from her home <laughs> base in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How was it's your great week? Great to talk to you. Yeah. It, you know, it, I missed you last week. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, my, my week has been very busy. Um, I have the nerve to be going on vacation and... Um, of course, that's always like you got to do a week's worth of work to, to be able to go on a vacation. Sad <laughs> but, but true. Uh, uh, do tell, where are you going? I am going to Winterpeg, a.k.a. Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba. Yeah, big family trip. So I will be going to the land of, you know, two-ton mosquitoes because uh, that's what happens in the summer. They they become, they only have a short time to live, so they get really big and aggressive. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to see family in Winnipeg and excited about that. Um, You're making our listeners so envious of you. No, Winnipeg is uh, a beautiful place. Volkswagen sized mosquitoes. I mean, you know, what's not to like? <laughs> yes, but lakes and, and, and nephews and a niece that I'll get to see and my father. So it's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to a family visit. So. Nice. Yeah, but what about you? How did you, uh, what was your holiday like? Um, oh you've been God. traveling too, the I believe. Holiday seems so, so, so long ago. So <laughs> uh, nothing, it was pretty chill. Um, I'd been traveling and traveling, and so it was great to be home over the holiday and um, have a few Fourth of July traditions and, um, and, and, and did exactly that. But uh, then I left on Sunday. Like the- what? You can't just say something oh. like that and then not tell me what the tradition is. So we live a uh, walkable distance from a, a little town with it's in the middle of Oakland called Piedmont, California. And Piedmont, forever, on the 4th of July, they have this really old towny kind of parade. It's just it's the middle of town, and you've got your floats, and you've got your marching bands, and you've got your... Uh, uh, school choirs and and scout troops and bicycle clubs and electric vehicle clubs and it's it's just really fun and then after that there's a park right next to that and and everybody goes there and some band plays oldies into the afternoon and um, it's just it's as close to small town America as you will ever get in the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Good it's, for you. It was fun. But yeah, this I left on Sunday as I started to say. Um, to head uh, over to your coast, to uh, Beantown, Boston, Massachusetts, and had two uh, and a half really crazy, hectic, fun, exciting days there. But what brought me over there was to uh, give a keynote speech, uh, opening speech to the uh, American Society for Agricultural and Biological Engineers. So basically it was 1,700 um, mostly agricultural engineers, a lot of academics, some corporates, some from the legal profession, some from the policy world, uh, public sector, 
and and you know, and, and some of them are very much uh, into and are familiar with and engaged in the sustainability world. But I think there were more than a few who kind of like. So, what does agriculture have to do with sustainability? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, no, so, it's it not. It's just not particularly those in the academic world who you know get climate and understand all this stuff. But you know, it's such a stovepiped world, um, and mm-hmm. they'll be the first to tell you that that. Uh, they don't get out of that cocoon much, and and so to hear certainly about the the private sector, the world of of sustainable business, and companies, you know, engaging in a whole range of things, and particularly in food systems, which is something, as you know, Heather, that we're just starting to lean into more and more sustainable food mm-hmm. systems. Uh, it was really, um, it, it was a great conversation, and uh, we had a respondent panel afterwards. I gave a 45-minute speech. There was a 90-minute panel afterwards to talk about uh, some of the issues. And uh, a really great group of people. I look forward to engaging with them uh, again in the future. So what else? I think you also saw some of our friends in the innovation community while you were out there. I did indeed. Uh, Boy, I just uh, bounced around uh, not just town, but um, a little bit north of of Boston, up in uh, both Wilmington, Mass, and and Somerville, Mass. Up in Wilmington, I visited a terrific, amazing man, an old friend of ours uh, called John Warner, who uh, runs the Warner-Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry. He really is the the father, uh, I guess, or co-father, if you will, along with Paul Anastas, uh, uh, another academic uh, up in, in that area, uh, and green chemistry. But John uh, run, came out of Polaroid and then was a professor at UMass Boston and Lowell in chemistry and plastics engineering. And he founded this institute back in 2007. And I'd been up there about 10 years ago, not that long after he founded it. And just doing amazing work, this amazing team on on inventing things through these principles of green chemistry. So, for example, uh, there's something called hair print, which is a hair color restoration. It naturally restores your original hair color. Um, mm. uh, maybe not <laughs> maybe not world-changing uh, uh, in that sense, but uh, it just shows the potential here. But it's a bunch more world-changing. <laughs> there's some uh, uh, number of different pharma, some medicines, uh, ALS and, and colon cancer. He's got uh, some technologies to enable companies or, or I guess, cities to uh, use asphalt, uh, recycle asphalt back into new asphalt by uh, giving it some uh, really sort of simple uh, rejuvenation spray coating that uh, instead of being torn up and put in a landfill before they put new asphalt on, and there's, you know, millions and millions of miles of asphalt in in the U.S. alone. Anyway, some other things, there's a, a, a... engineered wood that uh, doesn't use formaldehyde is a recycling technology for lithium cobalt batteries. Really, really impressive. I'm going to play an interview with him uh, that I did uh, after uh, we met and did a tour and had lunch uh, a little bit later in this uh, episode. So there's that. And then from there, I went down to Somerville, Mass., uh, which is the home of Greentown Labs, the hey. largest clean technology incubator in the United States, it says. And and I believe it. It's got mm-hmm. uh, almost 100,000 square feet of and over 70 companies uh, in, involved. And 
um, just doing amazing work uh, and <laughs> did a very quick tour through uh, you know the workspace and just you know here's a company doing this amazing work and that amazing work and you know autonomous uh, boats and uh, uh, re emergency response uh, preparedness and technologies and uh, just on and on and a very very impressive thing that uh, has grown up over over the years um, doing stuff in ag and water and transportation energy buildings and you know chemicals advanced materials they work with John Warner in fact so uh, really inspiring to see Greentown Labs and they've been a partner of ours for our Accelerate and Verge Accelerate pitch competitions at our Verge event um, but uh, I had never actually visited the place so I'm really yeah. glad I did. I, I'm familiar with their collaboration. They have lots of, when you say 70 companies, they have lots of big organizations involved in helping inspire the, the entrepreneurs there. So I'm, I'm, I love them too. I like their model yeah. a lot. They're, they're important. But the 70 companies are, 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 I'm referring to are the, are the startups, the uh, emerging companies. So yes, good but that, I mean, that, that makes it all the more impressive that beyond that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they have quite a few corporate partners, which I think, yeah. um, yeah, they do. So, well, that was my Week in Review, but let's go to <laughs> the rest of the Week in Review. I will get us started, Joel, on the Week in Review with a piece by a longtime contributor, Cassandra Sweet. She's uh, done some terrific coverage on renewable energy issues for us. And this week, she has a piece about how Salesforce, Microsoft, Apple, and actually about seven or eight other data center companies got got involved in a, a new um, uh, sort of goal that the Virginia uh, Public Utilities Commission put in place to um, to inspire renewables and less natural gas. So what's at issue here? There's a couple things. Number one is that um, you know Virginia is if if you're wondering why Virginia. Um, I think that you will not be surprised um, when I tell you the reason, which is that a large portion of the internet traffic in, in, in the world actually flows through this region. I think it's something like 70% flows through data centers in this region. There's a lot of investment, um, lots of um, you know, all these companies that I just mentioned um, and others are involved in setting up massive facilities there. And they are very interested in making sure that the um, the local utility, the Dominion Energy, is investing in not fossil fuels and uh, generation capabilities, but in solar and storage and so forth. So and several of them have massive, uh, Microsoft, for example, has a huge solar farm there. Amazon is also invested in, in um, developments there, as, as has Apple. Um, and so what's at issue is they've basically said, um, they looked at Dominion's plan, it's, it's next sort of short-term and long-term plan uh, for generation capabilities. And the, the utility wants to put in uh, small natural gas-fired power plants to sort of help with the, the growing demand. Because these you know, data centers use a lot of energy and, and with more and more companies investing um, they're they're having to meet demand on kind of a short-term basis, and their goal is to put in place some some of these um, natural gas-fired sort of peaker plants to help with that. But um, these companies really would like to see them invest instead in more solar plus storage. So they wrote a letter, and um, you know they're putting pressure on on the utility commission there, the the commissioners. Um, 
think it's the Virginia State uh, Corporation Commission. That's the official name. Um, you know, so it's just it's another great example of how uh, companies and, and the corporate sector is using their influence and their interest, their economic interests, to help inspire change and to help at least, at the very least, to get um, draw attention to issues like this. And so it's a great recap of what's going on. Um, the The plan uh, was approved a, a couple weeks back, and I think that still um, Virginia, the Dominion is planning to, to, to put in place these natural gas plants, but these companies are not that thrilled and, and they're speaking up. So I think it's just a great example of, of of corporate activism, if you will. I don't know, maybe that's too strong of a word, but but they're using their economic influence to, to draw attention to this issue. And all this is made possible, of course, because the costs of of solar plus storage is now cheaper than, than gas-fired peaker plants. And, uh, and, and that's, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this uh, over time as now that uh, it's such a uh, cost competitive technology or tech set of technologies. Um, you know, the, the days of, uh, we thought the days of coal plants were numbered relative to, uh, to natural gas, but now natural gas plants are also, I think, uh, rel relatively short order uh, going to be outmoded by uh, renewable technologies mm -hmm. and distributed technologies. So that's pretty exciting. It is. And just to put a bow on this one. Um, I mean, I think the concern on the part of these tech companies is that, um, Virginia and, and, and Dominion are sort of looking short term, right? So the, the, the reason they would put these in place is, oh, okay, get that, get them in there quickly. And so they're kind of resisting the permitting process and so forth. But the, you know, the concern is that they don't want to get locked into this infrastructure. I, to, to be fair, Dominion has pretty aggressive solar goal. Um, and, and it's outlined in the the letter that they've that we've referenced in the story, um, you know, they have a, their whole plan is, is referenced in the story, so you can check it out there. But, but it's quite an uh, quite a important issue, and I'm sure we'll see more of this sort of thing at the state level. So this story forks into two different directions. One is the energy direction, and the other is the corporate or uh, influence and, and activism direction. Let's go to that second one first, uh, because there's another story that uh, we ran this week. Uh, called um, Ready for the New Age of Employee Activism. And this is a sort of a, a similar but different side of this Virginia story because it's about employees that are pushing their companies to uh, take any number of actions uh, around uh, uh, energy and also social issues as well. And we've seen um, a number, particularly in the tech sector, at Amazon and Google and uh, Microsoft and Facebook, where employees are starting to uh, revolt, perhaps, is it maybe a strong word, but I think that's uh, some of it qualifies uh, in mm -hmm. terms of uh, what um, they want to see their companies be doing. But it, that, together with this Virginia story, really speaks to the fact that uh, so much... Of, of change in sustainability, uh, and particularly in corporate sustainability, is not coming from the public sector. It's coming from the private sector, either the companies or their employees. So this this story was by uh, Mary McDonald from EarthShare, which is uh, uh, sort of a united way for the environment. It's an employee-giving uh, uh, program that uh, distributes the employee donations to uh, a broad range of uh, environmental groups. and and. Talking about uh, what's been going on in, in, in employee activism, um, we saw this at Amazon. I think you wrote about this as Heather and employees um, getting uh, engaged in 
pushing their company to um, do or not do certain things. Uh, but this is really, I think, a growing area of interest, well, certainly a story we, we're going to want to keep tracking. Yeah, um, and I think the, the the Amazon thing was a very unique situation, although not unique to the tech industry. I mean, the, the thing that, that made that possible was the fact that, you know, when you work there, you get um, stock options. So they were not only employees, but they're owners, right? They're owner employees, if you will, employee owners. And so I think as more organizations do make that part of the compensation, you'll see more of, of this activity. Um, and for me, one of the, the most sort of like enlightening statistics in this story, um, or sure just did some research on this, was um, part of their survey showed that only 15% of Fortune 1000 employees rate their company's commitment to addressing important environmental issues as excellent. So, whoa, <laughs> like people don't have a very strong, a very good opinion of, of what their companies or what their employers are doing. I, I, I for one, love this new wave, if you will, of, of interest um, among the sort of broad workforces at these companies, not just the sustainability teams. And this is, uh, of course, in some ways an existential issue for companies because, and particularly in tech, because they're trying to attract and retain talent. And they're employees who simply don't want to work for companies. Uh, and it's not just about you know doing the right thing or being proactive. It's, a lot of this is around social issues, around uh, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, LGBTQ discrimination, uh, and uh, that's where a lot of this interest and in action has been. I also know that there are some efforts underway to leverage the model that we saw, particularly uh, in LGBTQ uh, employees uh, telling their employers uh, not to do business in certain states that had some, uh, uh, they thought, uh, uh, unjust laws around, you know, bathrooms in North Carolina and and a number of other states um, uh, that had similar or different their own versions of that. Uh, but they're starting to look at how do you deploy that on climate change? How do you get employees to get their companies to be more active, more outspoken, uh, more engaged and not just sitting on the sidelines of climate. I think we're going to see that uh, increasingly in the United States. So that's, uh, I think, standing on the shoulders of what we're seeing already right now in, uh, uh, in some of the employee activism. But let's take the other fork in the road and talk <laughs> about uh, Shell um, and energy. Shell. Yeah, we have... Uh, uh, not blanket coverage, but we have a number of stories uh, and, and uh, recordings you'll hear later in, in the next few minutes about um, Shell. And there was a, an event in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, uh, it's a series that Shell has been doing around the world called Powering Progress Together. Uh, Katie Fehrenbacher, our transportation analyst, was there. Uh, Sarah Golden, our energy analyst, was there. And, and I was there as well. Uh, and a pretty interesting conversation. It's uh, always provocative. It's, it's, uh, Shell brings together a wide range of stakeholders, uh, including many who don't agree with or perhaps even like the company or the oil industry, at least. And so uh, had a really interesting conversation. Yep. And uh, so you, you, well, I mean, we'll get to your, your conversation in a moment, but, um, but Katie uh, ran this piece, this 10 questions. I loved, love it. And for me, you know, it just kind of gives you a better sense of what the Shell New Energies division is focusing on. One of the things actually for me that, that really jumped out in this story is the, the amount of money that the 
Shell New Energy Division is getting. Um, new energies, actually, I should say it's plural. There's more than one focus. And the guidance that they're using is is uh, $1 billion to $2 billion a year. And that is a huge, like when you think of it as a person, just as an individual, like that's a, a mind-boggling number. Um, but uh, if you think about it in the context of what Shell spends overall, uh, it's kind of small. Um, Shell spends 25 to $30 billion a year on capital investments. Um, so that's about 6% of that. So part of the sort of ongoing thread of, of Shell and, and, and frankly, any other oil major that's investing in, in, in new technologies, and there are many, um, is are they really investing enough? Are they kind of just throwing some money at this so that people will shut up and, and not give them a hard time? Are they really serious? There are many critics that would say, well, okay, so why not all of your capital expenses, you know, investments over in that side? So yeah. um, are they moving fast enough, I think is always the question. Well, that's, like this, that, so there's the rub, Heather, and I agree with you completely that uh, they're investing in all these new energy technologies, low carbon fuels, and all of that is a, is a good thing. I, but I think the, the challenge here is that they still, and this is not just Shell, uh, but this is all the, all the oil majors, as you said, they still plan to sell a heck of a lot of petroleum for a number of decades, many decades, in yeah. fact, uh, five or even seven or nine decades, I think, uh, in some cases. They, they see the future as being largely petroleum-based. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case, given mm -hmm. uh, where the world is going, both from a technology perspective, but also a climate perspective. So I think there's a lot more they can do. They do have a, a new energy uh, division. Uh, they have or had, I'm not sure if they still do, a, a vice president of energy transition strategy, which I think is uh, mm. just provocative in and of itself. Uh, I, when I say had, I know that uh, Neil Golightly, great name, who was held that position, uh, moved on to help uh, city of Houston in their uh, uh, hurricane recovery efforts to lead that, I believe. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure if, if there is a one-to-one -one replacement, but that just, uh, I think, speaks to the fact that they are serious about this, but they're like all the companies, I think, trying to have it both ways. Yeah, and this this particular interview that we featured and we're, we've been talking about it was with Brian Davis, vice president of Shell New Energy. So I'm not sure if there's an, a transition person. It would make sense that there would be. I think the other, you know, the thing that is not addressed in here, and, and Katie's focus is on transportation issues, um, is the role that you know oil plays in dun 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 plastics. And so I think that. Um, that's probably an issue we should be poking into more. I know you've been thinking a lot about all of the investments that, that the chemical companies have been making in new plastics production capabilities. And um, so I think that we should have a thread that starts looking at where that petroleum is going. Um, and certainly they're investing in, this, in the transportation side, but I'd like to see them invest in, um, you know, maybe new technologies for plastics. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and analyst covering transportation for GreenBiz. And this week, I'm going to talk to you about an oil company caught in a balancing act that says it wants to be on the right side of history. The oil super majors are all trying various ways to invest in a transition to cleaner energy, or at least natural gas. But most are investing very small amounts of their overall budgets to decarbonize sources. 
But one oil giant that's probably making the most effort is Royal Dutch Shell, the second largest publicly traded oil company in the world. Shell is investing between $1 and $2 billion per year on its new energies division, a unit it created in 2016, and which supports emerging businesses like clean energy, power, electric vehicle charging, alternative fuels, and more. While $2 billion is a lot of money in some respects, it's a fraction of the company's overall capital spending per year of between $25 to $30 billion. Most of that goes to fossil fuel projects. Yet, within the new energies group, Shell is doing some interesting things around building a power business, which could have more stable returns than other nascent clean tech fields, as well as hoping to become an electric vehicle charging provider to global consumers. At an event that Shell held in San Francisco last month, I sat down with Shell's new energies vice president, Brian Davis, to chat with him about the business unit and how Shell plans to decarbonize. Before our interview, Davis had said on stage that he felt inspired by Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish student who's been leading climate strikes across Europe this year. I asked him in our interview, how does Shell authentically tap into the youth climate movement coming from a fossil fuel company? I mean, I think we all do it by just, you know, you just relate to your kids. You know, what do your kids say? You know, how do you, when you talk to them, what do they talk about? You know, my kids are, um, I got twins, they're coming up for 18 shortly. Um, so my comment before was more, I just think that's shit that what she's managed to achieve is a really important sort of change in the public discussion around it. Um, and it's now front of voice to, it's front of mind to a lot more people. And as a result of being front of mind, that starts influencing politicians and, and influencing consumer choice. Um, what, what we see within Shell is that our purpose is around providing more and cleaner energy. And when we came out and articulated that, that really resonated to everybody in Shell because um, we don't see ourselves as a, as a kind of a bad organization. We actually see ourselves as a force for good. Um, we've been for a long time providing affordable energy to the world and, and developing and creating jobs and economic prosperity for where we operate. So in the communities we operate, we're generally seen as a pretty positive, you know, so, you know we bring prosperity and economic growth we provide, you know, cleaner, affordable energy for, you know, India and places to develop. Um, but we realize society's expectations are changing. Um, and so we want to be on the right side of history, I think, is the quote that, that Ben often says. And that's what drives all of us. You know, and so when I talk to my kids, they've come in, they've done work experience at Shell. They feel pretty pumped about being in the new energies business. Um, the big challenge we face is that you can, you can make a simplistic categorization you're either one of them or one of these you know you're either part of the problem or, or not I think there's a voice for action you know and there's also being part of the solution and we'd like to be in part of the solution so let's stick with Shell for a second um, while I was at that same event as, as Katie I interviewed as well uh, Harry Brickelsman who is the projects and technology director for Shell, he was uh, the sort of opening speaker and, and looking at uh, a, a lot of the strategy that Shell has and talked about uh, uh, where the company's going. And uh, I sat down with Harry, and here's our conversation. So, Harry, one of the things about Shell that strikes me is that you've been one of the relatively few, or certainly the first uh, oil major, to talk about energy transition strategy. Talk a little bit about what that means and how that term may have changed for Shell over the past few years. 
Yeah, I think it comes with the, the realization that, of course, that's what society is in the midst of. Huh? And uh, that as an energy company, we, we realize we have an important role to play in that. Uh, and so, uh, so for us, that's really a reality. And then it's um, you know, turning that sort of reality into sensible strategies and portfolio decisions, investment allocation, technology plays for the company. So, so for us, it's become increasingly important to be able to not only articulate our role in it, but also to turn it into, you know, if you wish, our corporate processes, how we inspire our people, what decisions we make. Uh, that's what the energy transition uh, means for us. So one of the things I hear a lot from oil companies is they talk about whether they use the term or not energy transition, but it really means using, continuing to use oil for a long, long time um, and uh, maybe at a, at a slower phase down uh, than, than society or certainly the climate needs. How, again, has that changed at all for you in terms of how you think about the role of petroleum in an energy transition world? Well, I, I would say that the role of petroleum and natural gas is still important and will continue to be important also for us as a company. Uh, but I'd also point at what we're doing in, uh, in the low-carbon product space. Uh, and, uh, and, and you can look at it many different ways. You can say, well, in relation to your incumbent business, it's not very big. But if you look at it in absolute terms, there's a lot we're doing. Right? We're spending between one and two billion uh, in this area um, annually up to 2020, and then we're thinking of stepping it up. And if you see how that translates into investments in renewable generation, uh, but also very much consumer-oriented products like recharging, uh, biofuels, hydrogen, um, connected energy solutions, which are not also capital-intensive, so you, you have to think about, you know, the, how meaningful these investments are with respect to the future, then I would say, you know, we, we are really starting to build a material business in the low-carbon arena. We've talked a certain amount today about the role of policy, about the role of uh, consumers or public opinion or educating the masses. What about the role of business, particularly uh, large global businesses? What role do they play in terms of helping accelerate this transition? Yeah, I, I think in some ways uh, you could say that we, we are, of course, uh, the recipients of and then responding to the policy instruments and the, the changes that we see. In the same way, in the changes we see changing consumer behavior, you know, we, we would like to offer our customers uh, you know, a variety of solutions, um, but in keeping with their needs. So, so really sort of trying to, uh, trying to see what the needs of the customer are that are there today and emerging and being able to provide them those choices, I think is absolutely key. But that's not to say that all we're doing is just being a follower. Um, we, we obviously, you know, are in the discussions with governments and regulators and civil society around so what it is that you would want and what it is that we think is going to be required to really scale and accelerate that, uh, that journey. So it's, it's a two-way street, but, but we do, I think, uh, recognize and reinforce that it is important for us to have a conducive policy framework to be able to move those investments because that's typically what we do. We allocate and then realize investments, we make technology decisions, and Again, they, you know, they should be uh, well conscious of what customers want and how governments are going to help incentivize them. I, I guess I wasn't thinking of big business solely as Shell's customers, but, but also on this journey with you in, in some respects. What do you need from them? What's your ask of your, of, of your peer, not just uh, um, uh, energy and petroleum companies, but peer corporates, global companies, uh, in helping move this along and helping Shell make the transition that you're talking about? Yeah, thanks. And that, that's a, it's a great clarification. And 
you know, we, we have, I think, gone out to express uh, not only our long-term ambition with respect to decarbonization, which I think is a very meaningful statement to make, but also translating that in shorter-term targets, and in doing so, um, including the emissions of our customers and the use of our products in that. We feel that's a very important step forward, and we would certainly suggest to you know, other companies in this sector to, to do the same. Um, now, that's part of a process, uh, and not everybody would feel comfortable to do that, but we feel eventually that is the, the, the most effective way uh, to basically put out an ambition and set of targets that will allow the entire industry to decarbonize, which is, of course, what we need. If it's just Shell doing it, it ain't going to be enough, true enough. Yeah. One of the things you talked about uh, when you were on stage was the, the fact that executive compensation is tied to... Well, what exactly? I'd like to understand, is it to the energy transition or climate goals or anything else? And what impact has that had so far in actually moving the needle maybe faster than it might otherwise have been moved? Well, I think we recognize executive remuneration is an important component of uh, incentivizing management and the company to do the right things in terms of the energy transition. What we have recently put in place is... Um, uh, executive remuneration con uh, um, related to uh, an improvement in our net carbon footprint, which is what I just earlier alluded to, the uh, emissions associated with not only our own operations, but also the products of our customers, and improving that by 2 to 3% by 2021 from a 2016 baseline. Now you would say, well, that's, you know, that's only a couple of percentage points, but that is getting us on the road to a 50% reduction or improvement of, uh, of that net carbon footprint by 2050, which is what we feel the world will need, or that's in keeping with what society needs to get to Paris. So getting us on that road, I think is extremely meaningful. Uh, as in a company like us, we work by targets, of course, uh, and, uh, and, and we are the people leading the company that are, of course, instrumental in setting those targets. So we feel that's a really important step to show not only our accountability, but also to be able to hold us accountable with respect to the, the targets and the commitments we make. So, so I would say, on the one hand, people could argue that the quantum, you know, at first, appears to be relatively small, but that's where you need to start. But I think in, in doing so, I think it's an extremely important signal in terms of the accountability we take for it. So finally, I want to ask you a forward-looking question. Um, when you think about Shell in middle of the next decade, 2025, we're almost at 2020 now, of course, five years or so from now, how different a company do you think it will be? Or will it largely be the same company, but just more uh, diverse and, uh, in terms of its portfolio? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and and uh, so one thing I, I'd like to uh, think about is, is looking at it through the lens of the customer. So what I would hope for in 2025 is that you know, millions and millions and millions more people across the world are very conscious of the fact that they need to make decisions around lower carbon products and that they also feel they have these at their disposal in an affordable manner. Uh, and that they would be able to look at us as a company to say, you know, if it is around my... Um, electrical vehicle charging, I'd love to go to Shell because they offer me the most flexibility, the most affordability. Um, that maybe logistic companies that uh, are in heavy duty transport, that they say, really for us, the best way to decarbonize is use hy hydrogen. A and so we see in the Shell our preferred customer to, you know, to acquire those hydrogen products. So really offering all the different products and, and tools that are required to help the, the decarbonizing decarbonization journey that our customers believe that the best place to go for that is Shell. I think that would be my aspiration. And I think actually that is where we will be headed. 
Sounds like an all of the above strategy. Harry Breckelmans is Project and Technology Director at Royal Dutch Shell. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Shell. It was a pleasure. So as I said earlier, I had a sit down with John Warner, who is the President and Chief Technology Officer uh, at the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry, uh, one of the fathers of green chemistry, and uh, it's a really interesting guy. And first, let me tell you that if it sounds like we're you know standing on a highway, we weren't exactly, but we were uh, just outside of a busy street, having just come out of a lunch, uh, and that was where we did the recording, a little background noise, but uh, perfectly audible. I started the conversation by asking John, What's the role of green chemistry in the circular economy? Green chemistry I see as the molecular mechanisms that serve the circular economy. Anything that needs to be invented, either materials or processes that need to be invented, will have to be invented using the tools of green chemistry. So green chemistry doesn't tell you what to build, but it tells you how to do it? Yeah, it's the, it's the building blocks of how to make things. So if we develop circular economy technologies that are using carcinogens, if we develop technologies for the circular economy that are using you know, hazardous materials, uh, materials that are going to introduce all kinds of other problems, it is conceivable we could have a circular uh, mechanism, the circular economy, but still create now all kinds of new problems. And so green chemistry is in the positive sense, helping to create those circular economy mechanisms, but also necessarily making sure that we don't introduce additional problems by, by achieving those goals. In the sustainability world, to be honest, we don't hear a lot about green chemistry these days, um, but I know it's out there and I know that there's a lot going on below the surface. Uh, it, why do you think green chemistry hasn't achieve the status of, of some of the other memes or frameworks in sustainability? Hi, well, well, actually, I don't, I don't feel that's the goal. I am not seeking to reach it. You know, the circular economy, cradle-to-cradle, biomimicry are aspirational, important goals. They're definitions of state of how we want to achieve some kind of future, what that future should look like. And there are a lot of people that play a role in that. There are the product designers, there's the marketing people, there's the senior executives at corporations, there's all, every every human involved in these aspects have a role to play in these aspirational you know, def definitions of state like circularity, sustainable biomimicry. Green chemistry really isn't a definition of state. It is the verb, it is the mechanisms how you actually achieve those states whether you're, you're focused on circularity or cradle to cradle or biomimicry. Green chemistry is the nuts and bolts tools that someone in a chemistry lab is with a lab coat on pouring beakers and flasks a doing to feverishly work hard to invent new technologies to achieve those definitions of state so it's not it's not like you know everyone can talk about and participate in what a circular economy looks like everyone can have conversations about cradle to cradle or biomimicry but not everybody is a chemist and so green chemistry is is that part of the inventive process so everyone has a role to play to help direct us, to help be part of a community, to make sure we're working on the right things. But 
at the end of the day, it's the people that are in the lab inventing stuff. I remember you're telling me maybe a decade ago that that in uh, chemistry school, basically, they're not taught any of these principles. This is not part of the curriculum. Has that changed much? It's changing a little, but not fast enough. The, 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 the reality is, is the way we teach chemistry in 2019 is not very different from the way we taught it in the 70s. There's a lot of new sciences that have been invented in the last several decades that haven't made it to the curriculum. But the one that obviously I feel there is a moral and ethical component to is, interp- is you know, predicting whether something someone's about to make is going to have some negative impact on human health and the environment. And the sad reality is is if you look at the classes that you have to take to become a chemist across every university on the planet, you look at the curriculum, you will be hard-pressed to find any university that requires a student to have a class in predictive toxicology, to have a class in environmental fate and transport. So we don't want to make chemists junior toxicologist, but we need to have a little piece of, of language so that we can tap into that knowledge. How about in the big chemical companies, the Dow's and the BASF's, and well, you know the big chemical companies, who they are. Are they changing? Are they recognizing that this is uh, an important way to think about what they invent? Absolutely. I would say every big company has significant green chemistry efforts internally. There are green chemistry training sessions, green chemistry programs. Some companies have vice presidents of green chemistry or directors of green chemistry. But they're still struggling saying, why is it that this should be on the job training? Why aren't the universities training this as a fundamental self-definitional thing of what it means to be a chemist? Imagine that. Right now, we're, we're, we're talking in the box. Boston area. In the Boston area, there are more universities and chemistry departments than you can imagine in companies. All the chemists, they're making probably thousands of new molecules a day, brand new molecules that have never existed in the world before, and the chemists making them are unlikely to have a clue whether they're about to make the most potent neurotoxin in history, the most potent carcinogen in history. That's just simply wrong. When someone becomes a chemist, the first thing they should learn is how to anticipate those negative impacts, not after they're on the market. So we need sort of a Hippocratic Oath for chemistry. Yeah, and we need the skill set to be able to do it. And it's not that hard to do. It's just a little bit added to the curriculum. Well, there's a lot to do, and you've been on this uh, for more than two decades, so thanks for that, and uh, we'll we'll look forward to talking more. John Warner is the President and Chief Technology Officer at the Warner Babcock Institute. Thanks, John. You're very welcome. I look forward to talking to you again. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories, events, whatever else we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather, as she said, will be off next week up in Canada enjoying some vacay, but I'll be here with co-host Shauna Rappaport. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.